When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome in once again to the Ducks Rising podcast. I'm Doug Scott, joined as always by Andrew, QB11. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to see what you would do with that empty space if I left it there. How are you doing, Doug? Nothing, man. (laughs) Uh, Good, good, good. I'm I'm anxious to get into uh, this game this weekend with Oregon hosting the BYU Cougars. Uh, It feels like a game where maybe we learn a little bit more or maybe even a lot more about this Ducks team this year. I, I'm not sure we've learned a whole lot through the first two weeks, so maybe we'll figure something out. Yeah, it's kind of discomforting not really knowing where we stand. It's like we're in this weird like purgatory state. We got blasted by a really, really good Georgia team. We blasted a not very good Eastern Washington team. And so I think this is kind of the third um, and probably the most important like sample uh, in regards to determining where this Oregon team is now and kind of what the upside is going forward. Yeah. And hard to believe the, the regular season will be 25% over after this game. So it, it, it's football. It's, it comes fast and then it goes fast, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I think um, we'll learn a lot, hopefully about Oregon and what kind of team they're going to be as they head into conference play after this week. And we'll also, Talk about some other games around the Pac-12 and around the country. Um, week three in general is usually a pretty pathetic week of college football, and this year it might be the most pathetic year yet. So as we get into those games later, we can talk a little bit about that. And then um, also we'll be joined by by Andrew from Ducks Rising to talk a little bit about the platform, the future, where things are going, some some upcoming things they're working on over there at Ducks Rising um, for members and uh, potential members alike. So listen to the end, and we'll have that interview there at the end of the at the end of the show. Absolutely, looking forward to that myself. So let's dive right in. Um, BYU uh, QB. Why don't we start with their offense? Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the BYU offense. Um, you know, I was looking at their stats and. I think they were a fairly efficient offense last year, but they weren't a particularly high-scoring offense. They had a couple of games where they broke out, uh, you know, f- put up put up big numbers against some really not very good teams, uh, you know, 66 against Virginia and 59 against Idaho State. But other than that, it was a lot of 20s, you know, 24 against Arizona, 26 against Utah, 27 against Arizona State, you know, 17 against Boise State in a loss, 24 against Baylor last year in a loss. So they didn't put up a lot of points last year. And, and this year, you know, they haven't really put up a lot either. They've, they've won two games. Uh, obviously, they, they put 50 on South Florida, but uh, I don't know what that means. And then they, they beat Baylor in a, in a really good game, 26 to 20 this last week. So is their offense better than last year? Worse? About the same? What do, you, what kind of, what do they do on offense? Yeah, so it's kind of tough to determine if they're better or worse than they were a year ago. So by by F plus, they were 36th last year in offense. 
uh, or I apologize, they were they were tenth last year in offense. So um, actually a very a very highly graded offense um, relative to maybe some of the score lines you saw. Um, the the one thing that I noticed watching them, especially right now, they without they've been down uh, their top two receivers in Puka Nakua and Gunnar Romney um, through through the first couple weeks of the season, and they they're kind of missing that explosive threat on the outside. Uh, in in the game in the game against Baylor this last weekend, Chase Roberts, who's a true freshman receiver, uh, came up big with with uh, eight catches for 122 yards and a touchdown. Um, some really nice adjustments, especially there was on on his touchdown catch, uh, really really good throw right down the pipe by uh, by Jaron Hall. So, uh, depending on on kind of who comes back and who plays for them this weekend on the outside, it's not a receiver room that really scares you. Which if you're Oregon, uh, that's a really good place to be, considering kind of I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest, question about this team is uh, outside of Christian Gonzalez, the secondary. And and who's going to be the second guy on the outside that can cover consistently downfield? So, um, not not really sure without who's going to play and what the situation is on the outside at receiver. Um, at running back, BYU's got a really uh, a familiar face for Duck fans. Christopher Brooks um, used to be Christopher Brown. He played for Cal for the last three years, so he's using his last year of eligibility to play at at BYU. He's their bell cow main back. Um, Brooks is backed up by uh, Lapani Katoa, who's been basically a 60-carrier year running back for them for the last three years, always been kind of a solid number two. Um, Neither one of them really got good footing against a pretty good Baylor front seven last week. Uh, Katoa averaging 2.9 yards on nine carries, and and, and Christopher Brooks averaging 2.4 yards on on 13 carries. So... um, Watching this team, Jaron Hall is the alpha and the omega. He's he's the, the the person that largely dictates the success of each drive. As as a passer, he's got a really strong arm. Um, I've I've been impressed the more I've watched him with his accuracy uh, and and his ability to layer throws. He's not one of those strong arm guys who just throws fireballs every play and can't can't throw touch passes overneath and over the top of linebackers and underneath safeties. Uh, but his athleticism has not really been on display a whole lot yet to this point this season, which is kind of strange considering that it's probably his best trait. He's a really explosive runner. He's a guy that uh, you you would probably likely try to keep in the pocket just given his skill set. Um, so with with him and, and the and the two backs uh, in a receiver room that really outside of outside of Nakua and Romney doesn't have a lot of experience. Uh, I think that that they're going to really rely on Hall to be the the catalyst of making plays here. The offensive line returns a bunch of guys from last year, and then also features a familiar face for Oregon fans. Uh, Kingsley uh, Suomataya uh, is is starting at right tackle. Uh, this is going to be his third start for BYU uh, starting this year as a as a redshirt freshman. He he's playing pretty well, but this offensive line really couldn't get anything done. They struggled against the tight front that Baylor runs a week ago. They weren't getting hardly any push. In fact, they were getting stacked up pretty bad in the run game, as we discussed earlier, only averaging 2.5 yards per carry on 33 carries. Uh, a, a group that has a ton of experience but just really hasn't played that much quality ball this year. So do you see them you know, trying to attack Oregon in the run game, in the pass game? Obviously, they're going to do some of both, but where do you see them maybe trying to attack Oregon and how Oregon might be able to defend against that? 
Yeah, I think they would like to try to establish the run. I think that I don't think that's a great matchup for them, frankly. I think our defensive line is every bit as good as Baylor's, and I think that we'll be able to really stack them up in the run game. Ultimately, they're going to have to play with with the idea of trying to throw downfield with Jaron Hall. Um, if they have Nakua back, that'll make a big difference. He's he's one of the better receivers on the schedule if he's healthy this weekend. But I think they're going to try to get him on the edge, get him in a, in a in a place where, given how much man coverage we like to play in the back half of the defense, he's going to have opportunities to run. So really a big key for the Oregon defense this week, in my opinion, is to compress the pocket without getting undisciplined in our run fits um, so that we're not creating like big gaping holes for him to run through. Yeah, one of the things that Georgia really did is attack the edges of the Oregon defense, and you saw, I, I you know, Eastern Washington try to do the same uh, with with uh, obviously much less success. Do you, do you see BYU maybe trying to go at the edges again, see, you know, softening that that attempt up or coming straight at us? I mean, I think I think everybody's going to try to hit us on the edges, but the one thing I'll say is that neither of these backs for BYU are particularly good pass catchers, and neither of them are really the explosive types that you really want to get on the edge. They're more downhill bruiser slasher type backs. Um, doesn't mean they won't try though. Cause I think until Oregon proves that they can consistently tackle on the edge, I don't know that Eastern Washington is really a sample. That's going to dissuade anybody um, from, from trying us out there. I, I think everybody's going to try to do the same thing. Cause Baylor uh, with the, the amount of success that, that Georgia had against us spitting the ball out on the perimeter and, and letting their guys go. Uh, I think everyone's going to think that that's the best way to attack us until we prove them otherwise. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, let's switch over to the defensive side of the ball now. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, you know, BYU's defense? Last year, I don't think they were a particularly good unit. Um, so far this year, you know, statistically, their defense you know, seems to be much improved. However, based on the competition they face so far, Baylor, you know, who has an offense that's that's maybe a bit challenged, as we've discussed before, and, of course, the uh, just a really bad South Florida team. So, you know, is BYU's defense uh, considerably improved or, or too soon to tell? Yeah, um, I don't think it is, but it's kind of hard to say given what they've seen so far. I think in a lot of ways in, that this week is an identifying week for Oregon to figure out what we do well and what we don't do well. I think this is kind of a test for BYU's defense to figure out if they're actually that much better or if the statistics are improved because the competition has been poor. Uh, Baylor lost everybody who was an impact player at the skill positions from last year, and they were down their top running back and top receiver that were supposed to be here this year last week in, in Provo. So I don't know that I would carry a whole lot from that Baylor performance other than the fact that Baylor was really – able to especially late in that game get a get a lot of good work done um with the offensive line just running downhill straight at baylor climbing to the second level moving those front three off their spot they run kind of a hybrid three three five defense which is a structure that oregon isn't going to see a whole lot so that's one thing that will be i guess unique about this matchup with the baylor defense or the byu defense um from a talent standpoint there's a few linebackers who've been around for a long time um, who who have proven to be pretty uh, productive, but largely they rotate a lot of guys on defense and try to keep fresh. Uh, but there's not really any particular level of this defense that blows me away or, or terrifies me as a, just looking at, looking at their film. Yeah. I mean, it seems like through the first two games, Oregon has, you know, certainly deployed the running back by committee approach, but, but even more so really, 
I feel like led with their passing game a lot in Georgia by necessity as they got down early. And then I think at, at Eastern Washington, it, it just felt like they were trying to work out a lot of, you know, get, get rhythm, get timing, you know, work out a lot of plays, get guys work. And one of the things we're seeing is Bo Nix, you know, spraying the ball around, you know, generally in short passes to everybody on the roster, whether they're a wide receiver, tight end, running back. Do you see that strategy, you know, holding for this game? Or do you think maybe we'll attack them more with the running game, you know, to kind of downhill? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, there's, a, there's a couple things I want to say on that. So the first thing is, is that BYU traditionally plays a lot of too high safety. They really trust the core of their defense, their front seven, to stop the run while keeping the safeties out of the run game. Um, and they also play a ton of zone coverage. They're not a team that likes to play a lot of matchup man or, or, or matching matching coverages, um, mostly because I don't think they're the most athletic team in the world, and those matchups typically don't go particularly well for them. Uh, but last week they like abandoned that entirely, and I think that was largely because they knew the the struggles that Baylor was having with perimeter players, uh, receivers, and, and skill talent, and also they knew that Baylor's best chance to win the game was to run straight at them. So they were constantly adding plus one to the box, uh, playing with one single high safety and playing a lot more man coverage um, than BYU traditionally has really at any point since since I've watched a Kalani Sataki defense. So that's something to keep in mind, and, and that'll be interesting to to watch as as we get into the game on Saturdays, how are they going to try to defend us? Are they going to do the same thing to really sell out to stop the run? Because I think that our offensive line is probably a little bit better than Baylor's and our running back room is certainly a lot better and deeper. Um, And so we're going to be able to go at them in waves. And I also think that we're going to be a little bit more flexible in the way that we attack, uh, given the fact that we have so much skill talent at at wide receiver and tight end as well. when when we were in the off season and we we did our podcast with Kenny Dillingham, I asked a question about kind of what his preferential uh, personnel grouping would be offensively going into this year, and he kind of said, "Well, it really depends on who we're playing and what the matchup is." And I, I think that at the time it was a compliment to our personnel, and it is still today. If you're asking me, what would I do? I'm looking at this team, and I would play a lot of eleven personnel. Uh, one back, one tight end, and I would try to spread these guys out and get them in space as much as possible. While they play a whole bunch of guys on defense, especially at the second level at linebacker, and I guess those kind of like strong safety rover positions that they play in their 3-3-5, I'm not seeing a ton of fantastic athletes that I anticipate would tackle particularly well in space against our guys. Um, and with the way that we've been able to efficiently get the ball out on the perimeter ourselves offensively, I think that that's a matchup that we could exploit um from that kind of personnel package where we're playing a little bit lighter uh and we also because of how big and how physical terrence ferguson and um especially maliki Matave, i watched in the film from last week he's become a really good inline blocker uh we can add an additional blocker into the run game there and and i think really get some movement so it's going to be really fun to watch and kind of see how kenny dillingham decides to play with this week's game plan um, I think that Oregon can attack in a lot of different ways, and I don't know how many answers BYU is going to present. I think that um, the path to victory for BYU requires them offensively really humming along, and I think it also requires us turning the ball over. Yeah, so I think there you heard it, listeners, a couple of keys from QB on things to watch for. I, I know some of the fans have been kind of frustrated last week, particularly with the lack of downfield passing game. And I think you've pointed out several times that both Georgia and Eastern Washington have really just sat back in that too deep safety look and, and you know, kept everything underneath. And, and we've taken what 
what was given and that's what we should do. So I think, you know, what you just said, whether whether BYU kind of plays that look that they've traditionally played or whether they, they bring a safety up in the box is something to key on for them defensively, but also that might be that opportunity to get some of those explosive downfield passes if they do if they do go that second route. Yeah, and we, we talked about it a little bit on our podcast earlier this week. I don't think that Coach Dillingham and, and, and Bo Nix and Coach Dan Lanning have felt a lot of pressure to push the ball vertically, at least against Eastern Washington. Like When I, I went through and charted Bo Nix this week, and there's an article on Scoop Duck about it, um, we only 51% of pass attempts last week traveled past the line of scrimmage. We were really, really efficient. We were 100% efficiency on, on throws um, out to the perimeter screens, anything to the wide receivers or tight ends. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that first pass that um, that Terrence Ferguson caught for a touchdown uh, is actually a screen by nature, and that was caught behind the line of scrimmage. So uh, we weren't really pressing the ball vertical. We had, we had zero th- attempts of 20 yards or more. Um, which is kind of what you would consider the deep zone to be. I think Dante Thornton consistently catching the ball and showing some good promise in the first two weeks of the of the season, um, and guys like Troy Franklin, uh, and then also getting uh, Caleb Chapman healthy is going to provide the deep threats necessary uh, to to push push the ball vertical a couple times this game and uh, really start to add that vertical stretch along with the horizontal stretch that we've shown on tape. Makes sense. Um... Anything else you want to talk about on their uh, their defense before we maybe start getting into some keys of the game? No, overall, like I'm, I'm just going to be honest. Like, if we don't run the ball well in this game, I'm going to be pretty disappointed. Their 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 defensive line was getting chopped up by that Baylor offensive line, and I'm watching that Baylor offensive line, thinking that I don't know that there's a guy that starts for us. So, if if we don't run the ball well, especially at home. That would be pretty disappointing to me, but give, given how much better our running backs are. Um, this That matchup seems like one that is very winnable for us. They're playing with less than ideal body types, guys that don't have ideal length in those four-eye, five-technique ends, um, and those guys were getting swallowed up and pushed all over the place last Saturday. So really looking for the offensive line to have a good, clean performance. Getting Ryan Walk back should be good. Um, to me, this game 100% comes down to turnovers. Like I, Oregon, on paper and in my study, should be a two-score favorite in this game. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of distrust, and some of that's warranted with Bo Nix. And um, I think people are kind of waiting to see what what his median is against FBS competition at Oregon. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I, you know, speaking of the offensive line, you know, one of the things, and I haven't charted this, so I'd be curious, you know, if you, what you've seen on your tape reviews and, and maybe what Hith has, Hithoday has seen and charted, but it feels like that unit has been a little more consistent this year. I thought against both against Georgia and certainly against Eastern Washington, who cares? I can't really count that. But even against Georgia, I thought they didn't really give up a lot of pressures. I thought we ran the ball you know, reasonably well against a really good Georgia defense. Um, and, and it just feels like overall there's been less assignment misses. There's been more, you know, just maybe consistency in the unit. What, what are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we've been really good. There's been, there's been some inconsistencies. Um, it's, it's usually the guys though that have been coming in uh, Jackson powers, Johnson, Marcus Harper, getting, getting their kind of first reps in this system um, and, and their younger players. But overall, I think that they've been very clean from an execution standpoint. I think on some of our pull stuff where we weren't pulling as much in the, under the last staff, so uh, fitting fitting in those 
in, in those schemes isn't as natural maybe with, with the reps that they've had. Um, but that will come with time. But yeah, overall, I've been really pleased. It was kind of interesting. I was listening to a podcast, uh, Bet the Board. They do a really good job over there. Um, and I'm going to regurgitate a stat that, that they said, and uh, it was interesting to me, is uh, Oregon against Georgia, we had the highest yards prior to contact of any team against Georgia since 2018. It was 2.6 average yards prior to contact, which wow. doesn't sound like a ton, but it actually is when you're playing against a team like that. So that's a pretty, that's an interesting stat. It's a good stat. And it was something that they had pointed to and said, I wouldn't write this team off yet because there's, there's clearly positives to build off of, which we discussed last week. And I think we saw during the Eastern Washington game, this next step towards BYU is really the litmus test of are we starting to kind of put things together and can we start to execute at that level that will um, allow this team to kind of reach its ceiling this year. Yeah. And circling back to our, our podcast from the week before last yeah, I want to thank the listeners who made uh, the, the Georgia review uh, episode, our second most listened to episode of, of all time after the, the Dillingham interview. And, you know, that's all that says a lot for, for people to come in and listen to to people talk about what was a you know a forty nine to three beatdown. So really appreciate the listeners for that. And um, you know, I also want to apologize that we didn't get a preview episode out last week for Eastern Washington, and and we'll definitely do our best to make sure that doesn't happen again the rest of the season. So you know, you talked about a couple of keys there, QB. You know, turnovers kind of really being the key to the game. If Oregon's even, or or maybe even could suffer a minus one and still and still win, but you know, if you start getting a minus two, minus three, that's probably you know where that game you know maybe tilts the other way. Uh, and yeah. I think the other one you talked about was a running game. So I'll throw one out there. Um, you know, red zone, red zone scoring, and by that I mean touchdowns. Um, you know. It's something Kenny talked about when he was on with us. I've been talking about for years. You know, I was looking at BYU, and last year they were the they were tied for second in the entire country in converting their red zone opportunities to touchdowns. Um, they they were tied for second. The, the first place team was Coastal Carolina in the in the G five. So, out of you know teams that play a more of a power five schedule, they were tied for first at seventy four and a half percent. This year they've only converted four out of ten red zone attempts into touchdowns. So again, it's a small sample size in two games, but I think that's something also that Oregon has struggled with the last couple of years. Um, we saw it last week against Eastern Washington. Both of those red zone attempts turned into touchdowns uh, against the Oregon defense. And I know last year that was something that the percentage uh, Oregon's defensive you know percentage in holding teams to a field goal or less is was not very good last year um, after having been really, really good um, in 2019 and 2020. So yeah, that's well, Baylor lost two players to the NFL. I think that were pretty crucial for them in those situations. One was running back Tyson Algier who ran for tw- like 1700 yards last year. And the other player was their center who now is with the Cowboys. So two, two pretty important players down in the red zone. I also think them not having Nakua and Romney available has hurt their ability to to throw in the low red zone. Makes sense. What's another key for you? Yeah, so this is another interesting one. So um, it's tough because when you're playing against a quarterback with the athleticism that Hall has that can really burn you uh, for making a mistake when you pressure, he is – his efficiency as a passer drops substantially uh, when when blitzed. 
goes goes all the way down to a 51 passer rating when under pressure. Uh, what, that's pretty low in, in FBS. I think it was in the bottom third. It's gonna be an inter- it's gonna be really interesting to see what how Coach Lanning and Coach Taj and Coach uh, Powledge approach creating pressure in this game. Do they have an assigned spy? Um, are they gonna sell out and just try to get after him because? Under pressure, his accuracy drops substantially, um, and, and he turns the ball over a lot. The one thing I would say as a negative for Hall, he's got a great arm. I think he's a pretty accurate passer, um, and I would say he's a very good athlete, is he does put the ball in danger a good three to four times a game. Like Average last year, six interceptable balls a game. Um, that's that's going to be a big key for, for Oregon is that if you get those opportunities to convert. All right. Um, I don't have any other keys. I think we've touched on them, but I'm I'm happy to hear if you've got another one or two. No, I think I think that we covered it pretty good. I, this is going to be like a, a challenge. I don't. I know that there hasn't been a whole lot of massive positives said about BYU, but what I will say is they're extremely well coached and they play really really hard and they play very disciplined within their schemes. Um, and so they are a team that is going to be in the right spot far more often than not, uh, which on its own gives them a chance to be successful. Uh, the The key here for Oregon is to kind of match that level of execution and let the from there let the talent discrepancy kind of show itself. But if Oregon's not executing well, if we're struggling to tackle on the perimeter, if we're turning the ball over, this is a game that can op- easy, very easily go the other way on us. Yeah, I think I think it's a cliche, but kind of like don't beat yourself kind of situation, right? Um, Because, you know, BYU is not going to be the team that beats itself. No, they're not. They're going to be opportunistic. They're going to execute at a high level, and they're going to trust their systems. And so Oregon, if Oregon can come out and do the same and match that level of execution, that's where we get to see that talent advantage really kind of show its face. All right. So let's get into maybe our pick then. So this game is a a three-and-a-half-point spread in favor of Oregon. I'll go first. I think I made you go first uh, every pick we made two weeks ago. So I'm going to say Oregon wins and covers that spread. I think I like the Ducks to get somewhere in the thirty mid-30 point range, and maybe BYU is in the, the high 20s. So I think maybe it's a touchdown win. Maybe it's like a 9 to 10 point win. But I think, uh, you know, like 35-28, 35-27, something like that. So I've got the Ducks covering. Yeah, I do too. I think that Oregon's going to be able to add some some more vertical explosiveness to the offense this week. Um, I got I got at Oregon thirty five twenty four covering the spread. Uh, BYU is going to score. Or Oregon has not shown to be the level of defense to this point, um, based on a two game sample size. That's going to be able to blank or keep a BYU team down. They scored twenty six last week. Uh, score I think holding them to twenty four at home is a pretty reasonable expectation. Uh, and I think that the I think Bo Nix's ability to get the ball into our playmakers' hands, and and Coach Dillingham's ability to scheme one-on-one situations where we get to um, express that talent advantage, is is how Oregon wins this game. Yeah, I I think as long as we avoid several costly turnovers, I think our our talent advantage will just win out in the end. And it based on the scores we both just said we'll we'll both take the over i guess slightly it's 57.5 so i think yours adds up to 59 and i'm i'm at 61 so we're right there on the over yeah if if we're wrong and this game goes the other way it's because jaron hall plays really really well oregon turns the ball over some 
and we struggle on the perimeter to tackle. All right, anything else about BYU-Oregon, or do we want to move on to some other picks? No, I think I'm ready to move on. Okay, so I mentioned this earlier. Um, you know, it seems like week three every year in college football is is kind of one of those weeks where there's just a lot of bad games. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the best out-of-conference games are played week one and week two, and then we get to week three, and there might be a couple, but it's just a lot of, like, bad on good across the country as everyone gears up for conference play, which kicks off in earnest around around most power five conferences starting in week four so i'll just uh there's a couple of just silly lines this week that i i think are bare mentioning among you know kind of top teams in the country so ohio state is a 31 point favorite against toledo clemson 33 point favorite against louisiana tech uh, and clemson's offense has not exactly been explosive the last couple of years so even if they shut out louisiana tech you know 33 is a lot of points uh, Michigan, 47-point favorite against UConn. Um, and I, I think I might take them to cover that. UConn is just an awful, awful football program. Uh, yep. Tennessee, 47-and-a-half against Akron. And Alabama, 49-and-a-half against Louisiana Monroe. So, I mean, just some absurd lines out there. Yeah, I'm not touching any of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although I do, uh, think, I do agree with you. I think Michigan covers because... Now that they've announced J.J. McCarthy, the, the starting quarterback, I think they're a legitimate playoff contender. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised but, but uh, that, that Harbaugh's pulling the, the trigger on the right guy uh, at that position. So we'll see if their offense can, can kick it up a couple of notches. That's going to make them a really, really dangerous team. And like you said, uh, right there in the playoff hunt all throughout. I'm- I mean, last year he or last week he was like eighteen for nineteen for two sixty and two touchdowns or something like that, and the only incompletion was a drop. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think they found their guy. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. He he really takes them to the next level. He's a much better vertical passer, and he's a really good athlete as a runner. Um, all right, I got four games of note around the country before we get to the Pac-12. Um, Georgia starts conference play going on the road to face the Gamecocks in South Carolina. And the Cock Commander, or not the Cock Commander, unfortunately, will be there, I'm sure. 24-and-a-half fav- uh, point favorite for Georgia. It's a yeah, big spread for a conference game. I don't care. Give, give me Georgia and the points. There, there's just Georgia's just so good, and... I don't know if you watched any of that South Carolina-Arkansas game last week. That South Carolina offensive line probably must hate um, must hate their quarterback, um, whose name is escaping me, the Oklahoma transfer, because he was just getting abused last week. And Oklahoma's front seven's a lot better than Arkansas's. So um, I don't I don't really see South Carolina putting up any really meaningful resistance to to Georgia this week. No, I think Georgia's just. I saw them in person, and they're just too damn impressive for me um so i'll take i'll take georgia and lay those points too um texas tech nc state nine and a half point favorite for nc state at home against the red raiders what do you think about that one yeah it's interesting they had kind of a scare week one they looked a little bit better last week they being nc state but texas tech i I really like their offense that they really air it out and I think this is going to be a big test for NC State kind of as they gear up for their conference play. I'm going to go ahead and take Texas Tech to cover, but I think NC State pulls it out. 
All right, write that down. Um, okay, so you're taking to cover. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to go the other way. I think NC State's going to going to right the ship a little bit more, and I think they're going to put this one away by at least a couple of a couple of scores and and cover that spread. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if it went that way too, especially with Tyler Shuck being hurt. But um, Devin Smith has played good ball for Tech, and I think I think that they're going to. I don't know. I think it's a one of those kind of styles make fights matchups where a really physical NC State team is going up against a team that's really not going to allow them to to kind of express that physicality advantage that they have just based on the style of play. Uh, so a pretty big home dog here, Nebraska, fresh off firing a uh, longtime coach and home son, Scott Frost, is hosting Oklahoma, 13.5 points uh, favorite for Oklahoma here. What do you like in that one? I'm taking Oklahoma to cover. I I I know the whole like week after a coach gets fired thing, but that that Nebraska defense just lacks talent, and I think they're going to get smoked for it. Yeah, I think I'm with you there too. I I, I kind of had that inkling of oh, okay, you know the yeah the the team the team with their with their interim coach always has like that first game where they play above themselves, but I don't think it will matter. I. Nebraska just seems like they're in total disarray internally. And hearing some of the things that have come out about Frost and the program, you know, the, the things that have been going on there, it's like kind of eye opening. So uh, I'll take Oklahoma as well on that one. All Excellent. Right. One more national game. The only other uh, game between two ranked teams outside of Oregon and BYU is Miami traveling to College Station to take on the Texas A&M Aggies. Um, 45 point over under on this one. And I'm probably taking the under and it's a five and a half point spread in favor of the home team, Texas A&M. Yeah. I'm taking Texas A&M minus the five and a half. The Miami offense has really struggled to run the ball so far. They've, they've put up numbers that look okay at first glance, but like their efficiency has been very poor against teams that don't have near the talent in the front that Texas A&M is going to have. While I don't really trust Jimbo Fisher philosophically to run that offense, I do think that last week was a bit of an aberration and that they're gonna they're gonna be ready to go this weekend. Their season is pretty much on the line. If they fall to one and two, all of their goals are now out of reach. So uh I think they're gonna they're gonna come out ready to play. I wouldn't be surprised if a quarterback switch is made to Max Johnson. Kind of surprised it hadn't been already. I mean, like he has a lot of film showing that he's a plus player. Um, he's an above-average quarterback. If they make that change and and Jimbo's ab- able to scheme some easier completions and make the game a little bit easier for himself, I could see A&M winning this game by a touchdown. Yeah, I like A&M to win the game, but I think Miami's going to cover. I, I see it to maybe be a field goal type of game, a low-scoring affair. You know, A&M wins by, you know, two, three, four points, something like that. So I'll go with Miami. Yeah, no, I I understand that that position as well. To me, it's it's just a matter of I trust the fronts for A and M more than I trust the, the the offensive and defensive fronts for Miami. Um, so I'm going to rock with them and, and take them to cover. All right, let's move into the Pac-12. I, we talked about BYU Oregon already. Stanford has the dreaded Week Three bye, so they'll be playing uh, ten straight games after this. Uh, so that only leaves uh, 10 more games here. Um, Utah hosting San Diego State. Utah, 21-point favorite at home. I think that's going to be a bloodbath. Like After the way that that San Diego State game went last year, um, I believe this is the game where they ended up making the change late to Cam Rising. Um, I, I think that 
San Diego State quarterbacked by Braxton Burmeister. I'm always betting against teams that are quarterbacked by Braxton Burmeister. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think he put up a 58-yard passing game the other week. So, um, you know, seems like four years ago, five years ago, I guess it was. Um, probably the, the best game in the Pac-12 this week outside of, or certainly, or, you know, at least in contention with the BYU-Oregon game, is uh, Michigan State traveling up to play the Washington Huskies up in Seattle. Washington is a three-point favorite at home against the Spartans. This one can go either way. I really don't have a super comfortable read. The one thing I will say is I think that Michigan State is better up the middle on both sides of the line, um, which ultimately I think makes it a little bit easier for Michigan State to manage this game. But Peyton Thorne, Michigan State's starting quarterback, has not been playing particularly well so far this season. Uh, Jalen Berger and, and Jarek Broussard are solid at running back, but not nearly what Kenneth Walker gave them a year ago. The the I think the best and most sure thing in this game is Washington's pass game. Michael Penix has played really, really well. Uh, Jim, Jalen McMillan, Romo Dunze have been good players so far this season. Um, I do have some serious concerns, though, about Washington's ability to consistently stop the run, which uh, to me I think is – kind of a bridge too far so i'm gonna i'm gonna take michigan state to cover this game um i would probably take them outright maybe my bias against washington is shining through a little bit but overall i just think that michigan state um is a more complete team although i do have serious concerns about that secondary given how poorly it performed a year ago and the fact that they're down a starting safety and a starting nickel yeah, I'm taking Michigan State to win outright, but again, I I wouldn't be shocked to see this game go the other way. I think I think this is similar to Oregon. I think this is a week where maybe we learn quite a few things about Washington. I mean, they've played two really subpar opponents this year. They've they've done what they should do. You know, their offense is clicking, but will that translate against you know Power Five competition, or how will that translate against Power Five competition, and what's that? What are they going to look like as they as they you know work through the rest of the season? So I think we'll learn some things, and and I won't be surprised if they prove me wrong. It's really a big opportunity game for the Huskies to kind of you know pick off a you know a top what are they eleventh ranked Michigan State somewhere in that range. I mean a, a top fifteen opponent, whether they deserve to be there or not. I mean uh, you know that's that's a statement win, and it kind of puts Washington you know in the spotlight and on the map a little bit if they can pull it off. Yeah, yeah, and I, and here's the deal. I don't think that it's catastrophic for them if they don't win this game. No. Um, I know, I know it's a home game, but um, I do think that this is an opportunity for them. I, I don't think that Michigan State's a top ten quality team, um, despite their ranking. In the same way that I don't think that Baylor's a top ten quality team, despite their ranking. So, two big opportunities for Oregon and Washington to get wins at home against teams that are probably overrated, um, and, and kind of get some. Get, get get back on track and get some additional credibility in their corners. But yeah, the the one thing I will say is that Washington has really not stopped the run particularly well against Kent State or Portland State, and Michigan State's offensive line is a pretty big step up from those two teams. So we'll we'll see how that that game pans out. All right, moving along, uh, in a game that could be maybe sneaky interesting, Fresno State visiting USC. Uh, the Trojans are an 11.5-point favorite at home. 74 is the, the over-under, um, and I can see that. I can see both of these teams putting up some points. Yeah, I just think that USC has too much, too much firepower. I'm going to take USC to cover this game. Um, watching, watching Fresno against Oregon State last week is one thing. I don't like... It's going to come down to 
going possession for possession, who which defense is going to luck into more stops. Um, and I just think that USC's overall talent level is substantially higher, and they'll find a way to get off the field more often than Fresno State's defense is going to be able to do. Yeah, and they've been very opportunistic with takeaways so far in their first two games. USC's, I think, got eight or nine takeaways in their first yeah, two games. So. Eight, eight interceptions, four of which returned for touchdowns. I That is not a sustainable rate. No, but it's a, it's a good place to start from. Uh, Cal travels to South Bend to take on the Irish, uh, the reeling Irish, uh, but Notre Dame is an 11-point favorite against Cal at home, uh, over-under of just 40.5 <laughs> in two teams that have been offensively challenged, uh, to say the least. Yeah, so the, the question is, is like, how much do you think Notre Dame can score, and then do you think that Cal can score at all? Um, I, I'm going to take Notre Dame to cover. I could very easily see this being like a 14 to three game. I don't think that either one of these offenses has a pulse, but I think Cal's has less of a pulse. And I don't think that Cal's defense is anywhere near the quality of Notre Dame's. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I, I picked the USC game as well. in the last one, I don't know if I said it. So uh, I'm with you there. I think Notre Dame wins and covers. Um, it's a low scoring affair all the way around, but I do think Notre Dame is, is probably going to have a little extra oomph this week knowing that they have to win this game. Yeah, through two weeks, Cal has been unable to cover against Cal Poly and UNLV, despite Notre Dame's difficulties and the fact that Tyler Buckner's out and it'll be Drew Pine at quarterback. I still think that Notre Dame has enough of a quality difference in terms of overall talent that um, they're, they're going to be able to overwhelm Cal. All right, moving along. Uh, UCLA host Southern Alabama, South Alabama, and are 15 and a half point favorite at home. I'm taking uh, Southern Alabama to cover. Oh, interesting. You got to tell me now why. Uh, they're probably the best defense in FCS. Wow. Okay. Okay. I, I don't, you know what? I'll go, I'll go the opposite just so we have uh, something to separate us, I guess, when it comes to adding these up. So I'll take USC to cover at home, but, uh, I like they, hearing what you're saying. They've got a ton of SEC transfers, guys that have just gone down a level. Um, and they're, they're really well coached defensively. Their defensive coordinator is a stud. All right. We'll be interested to watch that one play out. Uh, a game I will not be interested to watch play out, <laughs> but I will check the final score. Colorado traveling to Minnesota. The Golden Gophers are a 27.5-point favorite. And I would take, take Minnesota, Minnesota yeah. no matter how many points. <laughs> it could be 40. I'm taking Minnesota. That Colorado like Colorado probably won't score this week. Like They, they got shut out last year with Mike Sanford. Um, it, okay, this is what's funny. So Colorado got shut out last year with Mike Sanford as Minnesota's offensive coordinator. Now Colorado has Mike Sanford as their offensive coordinator. I don't see that the product is going to improve with that. So, like I again, I will probably be putting some some scratch on um, the first half under for Colorado. Joe Rossi, the defensive coordinator for Minnesota, is a stud. They've got a really good team this year. Like in raw stats, not that any of this matters, and it's definitely not indicative of where they actually are. But they're number one in total defense right now. Um, and Colorado is completely inept. So give, give me give me Minnesota minus whatever. I really don't care what the number is. Yeah, Minnesota Minnesota wins and covers. Um, Washington State will be up on the Palouse this weekend. Um, looking looking ahead, that's Oregon's next opponent. Um, also on the in in Pullman next weekend. But this weekend 
They have another warm-up game after their big victory in Wisconsin. They come home to host Colorado State, and the Cougars are a 16.5 point favorite at that one. Yeah, I'm taking Colorado State to cover, not because I think Colorado State's good, but because I still have serious questions about Cameron Ward and that offense. They haven't been explosive. They haven't scored a lot against even Idaho. Um, and so I'm just, I just don't feel comfortable taking them to cover a spread that large. Yeah, I'm with you there. I thought I was gonna, I thought I was gonna have the, uh, the opposite with you there, but yeah, I'll take Colorado state to cover as well. I mean, Washington state will win the game, but it's a lot of points for an offense that hasn't, uh, really lit things up yet. As you said, um, there's no line on this game, so we'll just pick the winner, I guess, or, or, or say if we want to say anything about it, but Montana state plays Oregon state in Portland at Providence park. Yeah, I mean, Montana State's traditionally one of the best FCS, one of one of the best uh, Big Sky schools. Um, they added some players actually drafted pretty high last year. I'm sure Oregon State's going to stomp them, though. So, um, obviously, I, I'm taking Oregon State to win and probably yeah. cover regardless of what the line is. Maybe a more interesting FCS game. North, uh, North Dakota State plays at Arizona down in your neck of the woods. Um they're obviously North Dakota State, you know, storied FCS program themselves, and Arizona's the team on the rise. Looked really good in Week One, um, you know, fairly competitive in Week Two in the loss. Do you think they're able to win this one at home, or does uh, the FCS program? Is there stand? a line on that one? There's no line. Yeah, I'm taking Arizona straight up. Um, if that's the proposition, I think Arizona Arizona presents some problems through the through the air that are really tough for any FCS team to match up with, Just even though North Dakota State's very well coached. I'm sure North Dakota State will score some, but uh, ultimately I think that, that Cowing and McMillan and the pass catchers for, for Arizona will get loose, and, and Arizona will win this game by a couple scores. Yeah, I, I think Arizona wins. And, um, you know, like you said, Cowing and, and McMillan are just incredible talents outside, and, and I think that it's – just going to provide too much of a mismatch. And as long as Delora cannot can avoid like, you know, the turnover prone, you know, games that he tends to have from time to time, I think, you know, that was a problem last week. And if he can play clean and, and, you know, not have three or four picks, I think Arizona wins pretty handily. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. I, I just think that, um, Arizona's passing game is going to be pretty explosive on Saturday. One more game. Eastern Michigan travels down uh, to Phoenix to play Arizona State. 20 and a half point favorite for the Sun Devils. I don't love taking Arizona State here, but those Mac, those directional Michigan schools are horrible this year. Um, so I'll, I'll take Arizona State to cover reluctantly. Um, you know what? I'll go the other way. I think Arizona State wins, but maybe they don't cover the 20 and a half. And what the heck? We have something to, to bet on now. Perfect. Is that all, all right? Doug? That covers it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, no, I think this is going to be a pretty good week of football, but I'm really excited to get into conference play. But I, I do think that this week is going to provide an opportunity for us to learn quite a bit. I think like how much Fresno State scores on the USC defense, uh, what that Washington-Michigan State outcome is and how that game looks, uh, particularly how the lines of scrimmage play. Uh, and then how Oregon plays on Saturday against BYU, I think are, are going to be uh, they're going to make me a lot more confident and comfortable picking these games going forward one way or another. Yeah, not that I'm a big you know, conference, like rooting for my conference guy, uh, as you know, but I do think there are some games that, you know, there, there's some important games for the Pac-12 this year, right? Like, I mean, you know, this week, 
right? the BYU game, the the Michigan State game. You know, those bring some cachet not just to those teams that those you know Washington, Oregon, if they win, but you know they help the conference a little bit and perception and you know, same thing with the Fresno USC game and some of those others. So, um, you know, th- that's a good thing as we get into the Pac-12 play. Hundred percent agree. All right. Uh, I am looking forward to heading down early in the morning uh, to Eugene on Saturday. I'm cooking up biscuits and gravy and eggs and bacon and hash browns and, and the full works. And we got mimosas out at the tailgate. So it'll be a great day and uh, looking forward to seeing the Ducks host the Cougars. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll come away with a big victory. Heck yeah. I'm looking forward to it as well. Excellent, Doug. Well, thank you so much. It's been awesome this week. And, uh, Go Ducks, everybody. Please remember to, to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star review. It really helps us kind of get more exposure as we continue to grow. And uh, I just wanted to take an opportunity to thank you guys all for the support and all the kind messages uh, both sent to Doug and, I, and myself. And we really appreciate it. It's why we do this. So, And we will have our uh, review of this game, win or lose, out for you on Monday. All right, and now I am joined here on the Ducks Rising podcast by Andrew Parmentier, the founder of Ducks Rising. Andrew, hey, how are you today? I'm well. Thanks for uh, having me on for a few minutes. Yeah, I'd love to talk talk to you a little, give our audience a little bit more information and background. Ducks Rising, of course, launched on August 31st, uh, NIL platform. So it's a membership site that people can go to ducksrising.com, sign up become members. There's player content there. We've, I know we've dropped a couple of interviews already. We've got a couple more coming. We're working on some other cool auction items of signed uh, memorabilia. We've got some, we're working on some live player interaction events and other things for our members. So um, check that out. Basically your membership supports uh, NAL contracts for Oregon athletes. Exactly. And I, just to pre- preview a little bit, Doug, um, we'll be announcing in the next few days. Um, we had Justin Flo sign some footballs that we're going to do a giveaway for. Dante Thornton signed a bunch of hats. And we'll also be announcing uh, a Zoom uh, call with three new uh, signees um, uh, that are signing NIL deals with uh, Ducks Rising. So that'll be fun stuff to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to, I mean, the interviews have been great. If you haven't checked those out yet, go to DucksRising.com, become a member, check out the interviews with DJ Johnson and Jackson Powers Johnson. And of course, we got the Justin Flo and Dante Thornton interviews coming in the next couple of weeks as well. But uh, you're you're definitely going to want to be a member. You can get in on those raffles for some of that memorabilia, and we'll send that to you um, if you win. So let me ask you a couple more questions. You know, now that we this this endeavor is launched and and you know the football season has started, um, you know where does Oregon where where is Oregon sitting right now in regards to NIL? Uh, you know, kind of compared to you know some other programs around the country and around the conference and what and what they're trying to do and and where their level of success is at so far. Yeah, so that's a really really good question. Um, so I'm going to say that Oregon is. Uh, among the top programs in the country, I would say that we're in the second tier, which may be surprising to some. Um, and there are two components to that. One, there's the university side. Um, and two, you've got the collective side. So you've got Ducks Rising 
Um, and you've got Division Street, which has done some really interesting stuff. So I say tier two because if you look at, for example, what USC has done um, through Boulevard, BLVD, um, which I think was started by Caleb Williams and Matt Leinart, you know, they just announced that they're helping families fly to USC games, helping with lodging and transportation. And that's a huge selling point, right? If you look at what Texas did, they basically said, look, anybody that signs, you know, on our offensive line is going to get $50,000, right? So, you know, those are, those are really big kind of statement commitments um, to kind of future recruiting classes. The second component, the university component side of this, I, I think that Oregon has been a little slow to endorse openly the collectives that exist. If you look at Nebraska, it just launched its collectives and they came out and supported the collective and encouraged people, fans, to support the Nebraska collective. Same thing at Florida. Florida has an officially designated collective called the Gator Collective that works closely. Um, within the confines of regulation and existing law, um, you know, to put on events that benefit uh, players. Ryan Day at Ohio State told boosters um, that he needs $12 million for his roster, right? So, you know, I think that the, I think Oregon is a bit conservative. I think it has, you know, served them well historically to be that way. But at some point, they're going to need to come out and endorse or at least acknowledge um, that these collectives are doing really good work um, in providing student athletes, um, not only with NIL deals, but, but also just kind of more ways to improve themselves off the field. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's a lot of confusion and misinformation and lack of understanding about what is allowed, what isn't allowed, you know, and certainly there's also variations state to state based on the individual state laws. I mean, the whole NIL landscape is is certainly, you know, quite a muddled mess, but it does feel like there's opportunities. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's clearly things that are clearly not allowed, right? You can't sign, you can't pay for play, right? You can't say, hey, get, you know, if you come to my school, you'll we'll sign you to this deal, right? You can't sign players to deals before they're a part of of the university, before they've signed on, you know, their their letter of intent. So that's clearly out of bounds. And then there's things that are clearly in bounds. And then I think there's a very, very wide gray area of what what is allowed for collectives to do and and what is allowed where universities and athletic departments can get involved without crossing the NCAA lines and and where they can't. And and it feels like some schools are more risk averse and some schools are more willing to, I don't want to say go over the line, but at least go up to the line and explore where that line is. You know, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, 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 there are two really important points here for Oregon fans to understand. Number one, whether you agree with players receiving money and benefiting from their name, image, and likeness, is really irrelevant at this point because the Supreme Court and the NCAA have allowed student-athletes to do this. The only relevant question is, to what degree is Oregon going to participate? The, the second point, um, you know, just around the framework, is that you can't use NIL as an inducement to convince a student-athlete to come to Oregon. Once they enroll in the school, then they would be eligible for um, an NIL deal. But I'll tell you, Doug, not having, you know, NIL at Oregon that's meaningful is like not having a weight room. I mean, this is 
part of what student athletes, when they're on their official visits to Oregon, you know, they're asking, you know, how are your facilities? You know, how storied is your football tradition? How many players have you sent to the NFL? How much money can I earn at your school? I mean, it's just the reality. And you consider where a lot of, um, you know, kids come from um, that come into Oregon. I mean, an extra 5,000 or 50,000, 100,000 a year is, you know, significant to them, right? So that is just the environment that we're in. And the question is, you know, how willing are, you know, former Oregon athletes and, you know, the administration and fans, you know, how willing are fans, Oregon fans going to be to part with, you know, 20 bucks a month to support a collective like Ducks Rising so that we can sign more NIL deals with members, not just on the football team, but across sports. Yeah, I think something you said before, you know, really resonates, right? I mean, the genie is out of the bottle and it's not going back in. And so, you know, whether anyone thinks this should be the reality of the world or not doesn't really matter. It is the reality of the world. And, you know, Oregon has been on this, you know, trajectory and all the things that Phil Knight and other big donors have done to build the program and the coaching staff and the athletic department and all the investments have been made to build this program to where it is are fantastic. And this is just the next evolution of that, right? And it and it has to come it has to come from the fan base, right? Like the the amount that you the scalability of aggregating a lot of of small you know, subscription fees, membership fees, and aggregating that up over thousands of people, tens of thousands of people even, that is a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of money that can really fuel, um, you know, this program to be able to to maintain the level that it's gotten to and even, and even reach the next level. But it, it really is going to require, you know, a group effort, not just from the university and athletic department and former players and and you know big donors but also from the general fan base like that uh, it's it's what's work i mean you go to you go to the southeastern conference right and someone says hey go here to sign up for your monthly subscription and and we'll give deal to players and people are like great where do i sign up how much can i pay like um and and i think that's just it's a different mentality um there maybe than than the west coast and that's something that i think you'll have to overcome and we'll have to overcome. But I, I think it's really important to tell that message that we all have to be a part of this and, you know, whatever you can spare to build Oregon athletics and the Oregon football program for the future is, is going to be key for the continued success of the program. Well, look, Doug, look at it this way. I mean, you know, you have a five-star kid that comes on campus. He's going to want to know how much he can earn at Oregon. What types of deals have been signed in the past? You know, were they national sponsorship deals? Were they local kind of barbecue joint, joint deals? Were they collaborations with Nike? You know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so getting our collective up to five and 10,000 members, I mean, it should be an achievable goal. If you look at where, where Texas A&M is, I mean, Texas A&M, it, NIL is not for the rich. A&M has got, our, you know, 80,000 donors to their collective, Right. That's because, you know, they're fans, they're investing, they want to see them win. And, you know, what I don't want to see is Oregon lose out on really elite talent because we didn't have our stuff together from an NIL standpoint, especially at the beginning, you know, of the Dan Lanning regime. I mean, the guy's got a great staff assembled. There's an amazing culture, as we heard through all the interviews that we've done. And, you know, I just think of the, the world of this guy and, 
you know, to stop, you know, the building process. Um, you know, I think frankly, people have relied on, you know, the Kilkenny's and Phil Knight, you know, for, for too long. And, you know, they're very, very energized base. But, you know, the question is how willing are fans going to be to step up and part with a little bit of money uh, knowing that the vast, vast majority of every dollar they give is going to go directly into NIL deals to benefit student-athletes. Yeah, and I think that is really a good point because, like, you know, most fans can't can't donate or, or, or pay out on the level, you know, donate to the university, you know, or the athletic department on the level of these, you know, big-time donors, and they can't, you know, go out and, you know, sign a player to a to a personal NIL contract, right? I can't do that. Most fans can't do that. But that's where the power of the aggregation comes in, right? Like, you know, everyone, almost every fan can afford to pay, you know, a small monthly membership fee, get some really cool content for it, sure, and, and other cool opportunities and player experiences that are that will be rolling out on Ducks Rising. But also just knowing that, yeah, you're going to help sustain and build the program and get athletes and keep athletes here. And, you know, you know, you, you touched on this earlier, but maybe maybe talk about it a little specifically. Um, you know, you can't. You no know, program can sign uh, recruits to NIL deals. But how does the NIL program and what current players are are getting? How does that impact recruiting? Well, I mean, it's it's pretty linear. I mean, as I said before, how much money can I earn at your school is one of the top two or three questions that every you know, recruit asks when they come on campus. I mean, it's just like the baseline, you know, kind of offering that any top program has. If you don't have an answer for NIL, um, then it's a huge, puts you at a huge deficit. And from a coaching staff standpoint, you know, all they can really do is say, look, here are all of these student athlete support services that we offer. Here's a Jacqua Center, et cetera you know, personalized nutrition, all of this kind of stuff. And secondly, precedent, precedent on the types of deals that players that have come before you have signed with entities that are not affiliated with the University of Oregon, you know, whether that's Noah Sewell and KT with Division Street, or whether it's, you know, Justin Flo, DJ Johnson, et cetera, with Ducks Rising, you know, you point to those, you can point to contract amounts, you know, but that's all you can, you can really do. Right. And, you know, the more that we're able to sign deals, we just create evangelists in the locker room. So when a kid is coming through, it's a very quick and emphatic. Yeah, there are opportunities for you if you want to do an interview, if you want to jump on a Zoom call and meet, you know, fans, you know, through the Ducks Rising platform. You know, these are great opportunities and you can kind of manage your schedule and take advantage of those however you see fit. Right. So we just have to get more money in the door vis-a-vis you know, subscriptions, go to ducksrising.com and, you know, sign more players. And then this thing starts to, you know, get some momentum and, you know, could really grow over time. Uh, one last question for you. Um, I, I've heard you've got some upcoming news and an announcement maybe around a potential board you're putting together around Ducks Rising. Can you yeah. expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I can. I obviously don't want to give away names, um, but you know, we've been talking to former players and working, um, you know, through some of the, you know, uh, relationships that we have talking about Ducks Rising. And in a couple of weeks, you know, we'll start to announce, you know, former players across sports, not just football, who will join the Ducks Rising board 
and, you know, help amplify the message and amplify the good that we're doing, you know, through their social networks and through, um, you know, the kind of extended university network um, so that people are aware that we exist, you know, what our mission is and, um, you know, be really clear about how they can support us and in turn support student athletes. All right. Well, we will look forward to hearing more about that as that announcement comes out. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate the time. Yeah, and everyone go check out DucksRising.com. And uh, if, you ha- or if you're not already, you know, please consider becoming a member there.